And as we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you for this book and for all of the spiritual wisdom that derives from your word that is in it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set aside all of the other things that have been on our minds today and that you would open our hearts to hear from your Holy Spirit, Lord, from your word, from Lewis's writing, um, which is not your word, but reflects the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that you would guide us through this and how to live in a culture that is challenging. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now, if we're lucky, I'll hit this button and it will magically appear. Look at that. Okay, great. Let's begin with saying our scripture verse as usual. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And as we go through this book, I think you will probably notice more and more how very relevant that scripture verse is to everything that is taking place. So I want to just say a word of welcome to people that are new, uh, whether in person or on the live stream. Uh, One of the great things is that some of you may be familiar with uh, the Pints with Jack podcast, which is one of the major C.S. Lewis podcasts in the world. And they have very kindly decided to feature this class on the front of their website. So uh, if you've never listened to Pints with Jack, it is a treasure trove of uh, really wonderful wisdom on C.S. Lewis from a uh, profoundly Christian viewpoint. So I commend that to you. And 
welcome anybody that's new uh, through that or any other site. Just a reminder, there are several ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you're just listening and doing something else and not really paying attention and doing what you might call the osmosis method or the lying there and hoping something sticks method. That is all good, happy to have you. Or you can snorkel, go deep on the parts that you like and skip the parts that you don't. I've heard from some people in this class that they love the King Arthur references, and I've heard from other people in this class that they can't stand the King Arthur references. And so it's great. If you don't like the King Arthur part, just don't read those parts, it's all good. Or you can scuba dive and do it all. Uh, but if you're not on my email list, please do Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and shoot me an email and I will get you added so that you get uh, everything that comes. I really want to commend to you especially to listen to the music link because we just get a little snippet each week. And one of the things that we end each class with is this whole idea of focusing on what is good and true and beautiful and pure and worthy of praise and the music that we listen to uh, day in and day out may not always fit that description, but the things that we select for this class I think do fit that, so I commend those to you. So, uh, summary, remember we're looking for themes from Abolition of Man showing up in this work of fiction, and they are all over the place, and the further we get into the book, the more those Abolition of Man themes are showing up. So remember first, men without chests, the importance of objective values and how subjectivism, when everyone has his or her own truth, his or her own ideas, and there's no standard, there's no reference point, that that is the beginning of the end. The way, the idea that there's a natural law, there's a right and wrong that is built in to the universe and the human heart, and the abolition of man, this idea that man uh, wants to take control and use nature as a means of controlling others. And we're beginning to see that in really horrible ways in the story. So we talked about Out of the Sunlit Planet, where Ransom goes to Mars, Paralandra, where he goes to Venus, and he's in this unfallen, beautiful world. And then that hideous strength where the battle of good and evil, the battle between the forces of good and light, the forces of God, are against the forces of Satan and evil. And then again, the title comes from the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, that hideous strength is a reference to the height of the Tower of Babel, that old idea that goes all the way back to the Old Testament that we still have not learned from the history. We are definitely doomed to repeat history of thinking that we can be wise in our own eyes and we don't need God. So. A uh, couple of quick things as we review what's happened in the book so far. Jane and Mark Studdock are the main characters, and you might have noticed Lewis is doing something really interesting with the two of them. Each of them is on a journey. Um, one is journeying in one direction, the other is journeying in the opposite direction. This is a metaphor for their marriage as well. They are not invested in their marriage in any kind of way that accords with scripture. Um, Jane has these dreams that she wants to be cured of. Uh, she thinks there's something wrong with her. Mark is obsessed with his career and getting ahead and has basically no scruples about anything that will allow him to get ahead. So we see that progressing as he is invited into the nice, 
the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, the NICE. Yes, so um, the NICE is very creepy and it is a good reminder of how often things that are really bad are named by clever people in such a way that you could not possibly oppose them without appearing to be a really terrible person. And the NICE is just like that. Uh, Bellberry is the place where the NICE is headquartered. And at the risk of possibly reading too much into something, uh, but with Lewis, a lot of times there is something there. In French, which Lewis was fluent in French, and most of his a lot of his academic work was in medieval French poetry. Um, the word bell is the word for beautiful. Uh, it can be beau or bell, and it can be spelled a couple of different ways. So the idea of bell, beautiful, bury, to bury the beautiful, seems like it sort of fits with the nice. Uh, and then St. Anne's on the Hill, the company that's gathered around the director named Ransom, um, who are the holdouts against all of these terrible things that are being done. And we saw in the chapter, the liquidation of anachronisms, uh, Mark having this conversation with the mad person, these people that believe that they are, it's like, um, I'm trying to think what I said before. It's like liberation theology on a bad cocaine trip or something. Uh, just very, very bizarre theology, but trying to use a lot of theological terms to make it sound like they're on a mission from God when in fact they are not. So Mark has gotten co-opted. He's now writing propaganda uh, and he's fully part of the group. Even though he still doesn't know what he's doing, he's never been told what his job is. And there's all of this doublespeak, we're gonna see more of that in the chapter tonight, where you can't figure out what they're talking about. They just babble on and on, and, oh, babble, on and on and on, and it doesn't make any sense. And so Mark gets very frustrated by that, but because of the threats and the coercion of the nice, he gets even deeper into their clutches. Meanwhile, Jane has gotten fascinated with what's going on um, at the community of St. Anne's, but she still at that point wanted to guard her independence. In the Fog chapter, Jane is terrified because she sees this evil man that's been in her dreams. She doesn't know what to do, and rather than go home, she goes to St. Anne's. And then there's chapter seven, which if you get depressed with the rest of the book, go back and read chapter seven again, that whole part where she goes in and meets with the director is just all about the beauty of holiness, the beautiful spiritual truth, um, all of that, and Lewis's writing in that is just gorgeous. Uh, so Jane then gets arrested and tortured by the nice, and then ultimately escapes. And then in the next chapter, uh, Fairy Hardcastle, who's perhaps the most creepy character in the book, um, she gets in trouble for having tortured Jane too long for her own pleasure and then letting her escape. And Mark, meanwhile, and this shows you how far gone he is, he's all excited because the riots that they made happen, that they went in and created riots where there didn't need to be any, 
they went very well, and all of the writing about them that Mark did as propaganda, um, the other people in the NICE are all talking about it, but they don't know that he wrote it. And he's feeling very smugly satisfied about being so close to the inner circle uh, that these other people don't even know. So then the truth comes out, I don't know if you caught this in chapter 8, but the truth comes out that the nice doesn't want Mark at all. He's an embarrassment. They think he's stupid. They don't think he's even a scholar. But what they want is Jane. They want Jane because of her visions. And so they're willing to put up with Mark and have this just smoke screen of all of these potential jobs he's doing in order to try to get Jane into their clutches. Um, they, we're going to get to that. Yes, that's a good question. Uh, so what happens is that whether the director, who's just been telling Mark how terrible he is, now starts flattering Mark and saying, oh, your work is top flight, and we're so delighted to have you, and we just need to have the little woman with you, so just bring her in. And Mark is so dumb. I mean, it really is just amazing how susceptible to flatter he is. It's probably a good lesson for all of us. Um, that he just doesn't get it about that. And so then he goes further into the nice, and he learns that the head is literally a head. It's this disembodied head of this criminal that they're keeping alive. It's grotesque, it's twitchy, it has like green goo that comes out of the top. Um, just awful. Contrast that to the chapter about the director and the light and the music and the golden and the beauty and all of that. So anyway, the chapter from last week, Jane has a vision of this head and she is absolutely horrified. And to make it even worse, after she sees it, and her, you know, her reaction first is kill it, kill it, kill it, put it out of its misery. And then her next reaction is to feel sorry for it because it drools, but it doesn't have any hands to wipe its mouth. Um, but as if that were not bad enough, she sees these three men in hazmat suits come in and bow down as they talk to the head, and she realizes one of them is her husband. So the director assures Jane that they're going to try to rescue Mark. Mark, uh, self-interest is an instinct that is very strong, self-preservation, and he realizes he's got to get Jane to Belberry or else he's going to be dead. So he figures he needs to get her there. Meanwhile, Fairy Hardcastle, uh, and this is, Lewis loves to talk about how evil is not the way we think it is. We think of evil as being like the as I've said before, Satan getting out of a black limousine with a pitchfork saying, come do evil with me. And that is not how it works. Lewis says evil very often is like a bureaucracy. It's just one little step and one little step and one little step more, and then all of a sudden you're caught and you don't realize how it happened. So Fairy Hardcastle wants Mark to sign this form that will allow her to go arrest Jane. Fortunately, Mark doesn't want to do that. Meanwhile, Jane is at St. Anne's. She learns the story of the director. She learns who he is. She learns about the name Ransom. 
wink, 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 ransom. Uh, Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom for many uh, and learns about his interplanetary travel, learns about Logris, this whole idea of the true Britain that's sort of the Christian Britain from before the Vikings. Uh, and then the director holds a council with the company at St. Anne's about how to respond to all of this evil and the power that the Nice has. And it seems as if the world is ending all around them. They've lost their homes. They've lost everything. And he says, you've got to wait. Sorry. We're waiting on guidance from the elders, which are like angels or like the Holy Spirit in some ways, and that they have to wait, uh, which is not very popular with anyone. So Logros, just as a reminder, is that um, section in green on the map um, that is the idea of the ancient territory of the Britons, not the Anglo-Saxons, but the original people of Britain um, who were Christianized in the first century by the Roman soldiers. And there's kind of this mythical idea of um, how very Christian they were and virtuous and all of that, uh, that they uh, wrote about it in the King Arthur legends. And that whole idea of chivalry and the Holy Grail and all that is all caught up in this. So, tonight's chapter, The Conquered City, the summary. So, Deputy Director Weather summons Mark to his office quite strongly, like, get down here right now, and Ferry Hardcastle informs him, um, along with the director, that the nice police found Mark's missing wallet. You might remember uh, many chapters ago, his wallet disappeared the first night he was at the Nice. And they say that they found his wallet next to the body of this murdered professor. So uh, Weather goes on to say how fortunate it is that the Nice police made this discovery instead of the regular police, since the Nice are one big happy family, except he's implying that they murder each other. But besides that, um, but he is, uh, Mark is very upset about this because he knows he was nowhere near where Hingist was murdered. And he thinks somebody in the night stole his wallet and planted it in order to manipulate him with the threat of going to the police if he resists their commands. That is the first good thought Mark has had in this book in many chapters. And he realizes that their real aim is to get Jane to Belberry. So even through his thick head, the light is it hasn't dawned yet, but the light is beginning to creep in. So he knows he has to warn Mark, I mean, warn Jane, so he is uh, determined as soon as this meeting with Wither is over to get out of there. He flees. Once again, he encounters Wither. And this is impossible, because remember, he's gone far away into the grounds, and all of a sudden, weather is there. And this is what happened last time he tried to flee. Last time he tried to flee, he was so terrified that he saw weather that he just turned around and started weeping and went back to the nice. This time, he bops him on the head like little bunny foo-foo and takes him out. And the interesting thing is that when he does that, there's no body, there's no person lying there, it just vanishes. So clearly there's spiritual warfare going on here. Uh, so he then seeks to go home to Edgestow. He should have realized, remember, who 
was writing about the riots that the NICE was starting. He was, and the riots are in Edgestow, so he might have figured out that things might not be all good when he went to Edgestow, but he tries to go back there, and he goes back, and surprise, surprise, since the town is abandoned except for NICE officials, Jane is not there. But he notices there's a letter on the table to Mrs. Dumble, which has not yet been mailed. So he decides to go see Dr. Dumble. And remember, the Dumbles were, Dr. Dumble was Jane's professor in college. Well, Mark is feeling really guilty about all manner of things. And so he decides to engage in that good old psychological exercise called projection. Uh, projection is when you are feeling really bad about something, but rather than acknowledge it and deal with it, you decide that somebody else did something really bad and it's actually all their fault. So he fixes on Dr. Dumble for this. Dr. Dumble has done absolutely nothing except try to help Jane. So he goes and has this confrontation with Dr. Dumble saying that he wants to assure Jane's safety, which is hilarious if you think about it, because Mark is the one who's friends at the, the, the nice people of the nice are the ones who arrested Jane, tortured her, beat her up, burned her with cigarettes, you know, all of that. So anyway, this reign of terror is going on. Mark goes into Dumble and demands to know where Jane is. Dumble refuses to tell him and says it's to protect Jane's safety. And Dumble states emphatically that the nice police tortured and burned Jane because Mark apparently still believes the story Fairy Hardcastle said that Jane invented that story and is actually having a nervous breakdown. Mark demands to know why Dumble didn't go to the regular police if this really happened. Well, once again, Mark should know they've been talking at the NICE about how they got rid of the regular police because the whole area is now under the command of the institutional police and their emergency powers ruled by Lord Feverstone. And Dumble says, Edgestow is a conquered and occupied city. So Mark continues to go on and on about the fact that he's Jane's husband and he deserves to know where she is because he's her husband. Now, just think about how often has Mark seen Jane lately? Oh, oh did he abandon her? Oh, and leave her in a city full of terrorists who are going around throwing people out of their houses and murdering people? Hmm. Well, now he's very concerned about her. So Dumble points out to Mark, and this is a great passage, that Mark is a high-ranking official at the NICE, that the NICE is responsible for all manner of horrific acts, including multiple murders, and that the NICE presents a very real threat to Jane's safety, and then Dumble, greatly to his credit, and at the risk of his own life, begs Mark to leave the nice. And Mark is tempted to do so. And there's this little passage where it says, the door of paradise opened for just a moment. But then Mark, he can't help himself. He's so worried about his career, and he dithers. I'm surprised Lewis didn't name him dither. He can't ever make a decision. So he wants more time. And Dumble says, you don't have any more time. There is no time to think. And as soon as Mark leaves, he is arrested by the police 
for the murder of Belhingist. So, meanwhile, Dimble gets in his car, drives back to St. Anne's, and something has happened. They're ready to take action. All of this waiting has led them to a next step. So Dimble and Jane are going to be sent out by the director because of Jane's latest dream, which showed a long tunnel that goes up very gradually with an entrance that's hidden by a heap of stone and a little gate, which would lead them to Merlin. And Merlin, the great magician, apparently has awakened. And only Dimble and the director know the great tongue, and so the director tells Dimble that he needs to be the one to go and speak with Merlin. He tells Dimble exactly what to say and then asks him to repeat it in the great tongue. And when these words are spoken, this is another gorgeous passage. When these words are spoken, Jane's heart leaps. Everyone is overcome with awe from hearing the language from before the fall and beyond the moon. And then our first explicitly Christian language, the director urges everyone to prayer, asks Jane if she's pledged herself to God. She says she doesn't know Maladil yet, but she puts herself in obedience to the director, and he says that will suffice, and that will get unpacked more later on. So some key passages and themes from this chapter. The wakeful night moved all his fears onto a new level. Mark was, of course, a materialist in theory, and also in theory he was past the age at which one can have night fears. But now, as the wind rattled his window hour after hour, he felt those old terrors again, the old exquisite thrill as of cold fingers delicately traveling down his back. Materialism is, in fact, no protection. Those who seek it in that hope, they are not a negligible class, will be disappointed. The thing you fear is impossible. Well and good. Can you therefore cease to fear it? Not here and now. And what then? If you must see ghosts, it's better not to disbelieve in them. And this is that whole idea of the emptiness of materialism. Lewis is playing with those themes from the abolition of man, that you can deny reality, you can deny it until the cows come home, but reality is still reality. And then the next little part. What on earth is this all about, said Mark. His tone was what I think almost any man would have used in the circumstances, but which policemen are apt to describe as blustering. None of that, said Miss Hardcastle. This wallet was found in the grass beside the road about five yards from Hingis' body. My God, said Studdock, you don't mean the thing's absurd. There's no use appealing to me, said Miss Hardcastle. I'm not a solicitor, nor a jury, nor a judge. I'm only a policewoman. I'm telling you the facts. Let's just pause there for a minute. The facts. Nothing she said is true. Nothing. It's all lies. Okay, but it's facts. Do I understand that I'm suspected of murdering Hingist? I don't really think, said the deputy director, that you need have the slightest apprehension that there is at this stage any radical difference between your colleagues and yourself as to the light in which this very painful matter should be regarded. The question is really a constitutional one. What? So we've got lies, we've got false evidence, we've got coercion, and we've got doublespeak. This is like one of those games where you play which word does not belong except they all don't belong. 
It doesn't make any sense at all. And that's part of what Lewis is playing with, the confusion of language. As you go further and further into this book, everything the nice says becomes more and more gobbledygook. My dear friend, said Weather in an antediluvian tone, there's not the slightest desire on the part of the committee to insist on defining in cases of this sort the powers of action of our own police, much less what is here in question, their powers of inaction. I do not think anyone had suggested that Miss Hardcastle should be obliged, in any sense that limited her own initiative, to communicate to outside authorities, who by their very organization must be supposed to be less adapted for dealing with such imponderable and quasi-technical inquiries as will often arise, any facts acquired by her and her staff in the course of their internal functioning within the NICE. What? Do I understand, said Mark, no you don't, Mark. Do I understand that Miss Hardcastle thinks she has facts justifying my arrest for the murder of Mr. Hingist? but is kindly offering to suppress them? So we've got good old corruption, good old-fashioned lies, and good old-fashioned injustice. And of course, the next line right there that I didn't put in is Fairy Hardcastle says, you got it, Sonny. So then it turns out they have a letter that Mark wrote that he doesn't know how in the world they got. How does that letter come to be in your hands, said Mark? I think, Mr. Studdock, said the deputy director, now just listen to this, it would be very improper to suggest that Miss Hardcastle should give any kind of exposition, in detail, I mean, of the actual working of the institutional police. In saying this, I do not mean for one moment to deny that the fullest possible confidence between all members of the NICE is one of the most valuable characteristics it can have, and indeed a sine qua non of that really concrete and organic life which we expect it to develop. But there are necessarily certain spheres, not sharply defined, of course, but inevitably revealing themselves in response to the environment and obedience to the indwelling ethos or dialectic of the whole, in which a confidence that involved the verbal interchange of facts would, or would defeat its own end. What? He's just getting worse and worse. If you read this late at night, don't think it's you. This is all very intentional on Lewis's part. We see the corruption, we see blackmail, we see doublespeak, all of this innuendo. So Mark finally comes around and says, there's nothing to be done at present. No, said Weather, no. No immediate action of any official character. It is, of course, very advisable that you should act, as I'm sure you will, with the greatest prudence and uh, caution for the next few months. As long as you are with us, Scotland Yard would, I feel, see the inconvenience of trying to act, unless they had a very clear case indeed. It is no doubt probable that some, uh, some trial of strength between the ordinary executive and our own organization will take place within the next six months, but I think it is very unlikely that they would choose to make this a test case. So there's more doublespeak, some good old threats and coercion, a little throwing around of Scotland Yard, a little more corruption there. And again, Fairy Hardcastle translates, and I didn't put this in, don't stick your nose outside of Belberry, Sunny. So, and now that Mrs. Studdock is going to join you here, oh really, did we know that? No. 
Uh, now that Mrs. Static is going to join you here, this temporary captivity, whoop, that was a slip up to use that word, captivity, I'm using that word, you will understand, in a metaphorical sense, hmm, metaphorical, will not be a serious hardship. You're metaphorically not allowed to leave. You must look upon this as your home, Mr. Stuttock. Oh, that reminds me, sir, said Mark. I'm not really quite sure about having my wife here. As a matter of fact, she's not in very good health, but surely in that case, you must be all the more anxious to have her here. I don't believe it would suit her, sir. The DD's eyes wandered and his voice became lower. I had almost forgotten, Mr. Stuttock, he said, to congratulate you on your introduction to our head. It marks an important transition in your career. We all now feel that you are really one of us in a deeper sense. I am sure nothing is further from your intention than to repel the friendly, the almost fatherly concern he feels about you. He is very anxious to welcome Mrs. Stuttock among us at the earliest opportunity. That should give you creepy feelings. Why, said Mark suddenly. Wither looked at Mark with an indescribable smile. My dear boy, he said, unity, you know, the family circle. She'd, she'd be company for Miss Hardcastle. So, just awful. So, we've got captivity, coercion, and this ludicrous reasoning. We want Jane so she can hang out with Fairy Hardcastle? Are you serious? Yes! It's like, okay. But it is amazing when people are engaged in evil and they are cut loose from the whole idea of right and wrong, and they think they can speak their own truth, people will say the most crazy, outlandish things. And if you don't believe it, just watch the news. <laughs> Scarcely a minute had passed since he had left the DD's office and no one had overtaken him. But yesterday's adventure was happening all over again. A tall, stooped, shuffling, creaking figure, humming a tune, barred his way. Mark had never fought. Ancestral impulses lodged in his body, that body which was in so many ways wiser than his mind, directed the blow which he aimed at the head of his senile obstructor. But there was no impact. The shape had suddenly vanished. So we've got spiritual warfare going on. We've got evil going on. And then Lewis is referring us back to the idea that God is the creator of the body and that there are instincts, there's conscience, there are natural reflexes in the body that are still redolent of their creator. So Mark flees, and he lands on this road. These were the refugees from Edstow. Some had been turned out of their houses, some scared by the riots, and still more by the restoration of order. Something like a terror appeared to have been established in the town. They tell me there were 200 arrests yesterday, said the landlord. Ah, said the young man, they're hard cases, those nice police. Every one of them. They never ought to have brought those Welsh and Irish. Now, one of the things you may not know is there is a lot of prejudice 
against people from Ireland and people from Wales and sometimes even people from Scotland when you are in the England part of the UK. And so this is uh, ethnic and racial prejudice. Um, you see here also the human cost of totalitarianism, um, the corruption of justice, these 200 arrests in one day, and the stoking of ethnic prejudice to get people worked up. What struck Mark deeply was the almost complete absence of indignation among these speakers, or even of any distinct sympathy with the refugees. Everyone present, you have at least one outrage in Edgestone, but all agreed that these refugees must be greatly exaggerating. It says in this morning's paper that things are pretty well settling down, said the landlord. That's right, agreed the others. If it's in the newspaper and on the media, it must be true. There'll always be some who get awkward, said the potato-faced man. What's the good of getting awkward, asked another. It's got to go on. You can't stop it. So this is pointing out that whole danger of complacency, of thinking it's just inevitable. You fail to see what is going on right before your very eyes. And there's this whole idea of resignation in the face of evil. There's nothing we can do. There was an element in him to which all these exhibitions of power, because he's gone into Edgestone and he sees nice placards everywhere. It's like Nazis when they come in and the swastikas everywhere. Um, and the nice symbol is this muscular male nude with a lightning bolt. So there's an element in him to which all these exhibitions of power suggested chiefly how much nicer and how much more appropriate it was, all said and done, to be part of the nice than to be an outsider. Even now, had he been taking all this démarche about a murder trial too seriously? Of course, that was the way Wither managed things. He liked to have something hanging over everyone. Doesn't everyone? It was only a way to keep him at Belbury and make him send for Jane. Not so bad. And when one came to think of it, why not? She couldn't go on def indefinitely living alone. And the wife of a man who meant to have a career and live at the center of things would have to learn to be a woman of the world. Wow. So that's a pretty bad speech. So you might notice there's a little bit of pride going on there. Evil has gotten the upper hand. He is denying the reality that he just experienced, and he is self-deceiving and rationalizing about everything. So he then goes on and confronts Dimble. I insist on being told where Jane is. Do you want her to be taken to Belberry? Mark winced. It was as if the other had read the very thought he had had in Bristol half an hour ago. I don't see, Dumble, he said, why I should be cross-questioned in this way. Where is my wife? I have no permission to tell you. She's not in my house, nor under my protection. She is well and happy and safe. If you still have the slightest regard for her happiness, you will make no attempt to get in touch with her. Am I sort of a leper or criminal that I can't even be trusted to know her address? Excuse me, you are a member of the nice who have already insulted, tortured, and arrested her. Since her escape, she has been left alone only because your colleagues do not know where she is. And if it really was the nice police, do you suppose I'm not going to have a very full explanation out of them? Damn it, what do you take me for? I can only hope that you have no power in the nice at all. 
If you have no power, then you cannot protect her. If you have, then you are identified with its policy. In neither case will I help you to discover where Jane is. And so here you've got the classic confrontation of good and evil. Mark is still uh, full of self-deception. And here's Dimble again. As you are, already, are you already as near the center of Belberry as that? If so, then you, you have consented to the murder of Hengist, the murder of Compton. If so, it was by your orders that Mary Prescott was raped and battered to death in the sheds behind the station. It is with your approval that criminals, honest criminals whose hands you're unfit to touch, are being taken from the jails to which British judges sent them on the conviction of British juries and packed off to Belberry to undergo for an indefinite period out of reach of the law whatever tortures or assaults on personal identity you call remedial treatment. It is you who have driven 2,000 families from their homes to die of exposure in every ditch from here to Birmingham or Worcester. It is you who can tell us why Place and Rowley and Cunningham at 80 years of age have been arrested and where they are. And if you are as deeply in it as that, not only will I not deliver Jane into your hands, but I would not deliver my dog. So, Dr. Dimble has found the courage of his convictions, but he is very aware about what Mark's actions mean, that he is complicit in all of this evil that is going on at Belberry, and he bears a measure of responsibility for it. So then Mark goes on to say that, you know, the things that you see in the papers are actually true, except for the gutter press. Gutter press, thundered Dimble, who seemed to Mark to be even physically larger than he was a few minutes before. What nonsense is this? Do you suppose I don't know that you have control of every paper in the country except one? And that one has not appeared this morning. Its printers have gone on strike. The poor dupes say they will not print articles attacking the People's Institute. Where the lies and all other papers come from, you know better than I. <laughs> yes, because he's the one writing them. So this is all about propaganda, misinformation, the way that people are manipulated by a media that is unaccountable. So Dimble continues, Static. This is not a time for foolery or compliments. It may be that both of us are within a few minutes of death. You've probably been shadowed into the college. And I, at any rate, don't propose to die with polite insincerities in my mouth. I don't trust you. Why should I? You are the accomplice of the worst men in the world. Your very coming to me this afternoon may be only a trap. Nevertheless, continued Dimble, knowing all this, knowing that you may be only the bait and the trap, I will take a risk. I will risk things compared with which both our lives are a triviality. If you seriously wish to leave the nice, I will help you. One moment, it was like the gates of paradise opening. Then at once, caution and the incurable wish to temporize rushed back. The chink had closed again. I... I, I'd need to think that over, he mumbled. There is no time, said Dumble, and there's really nothing to think about. I'm offering you a way back into the human family, but you must come at once. And again, you see how this sort of danger 
sort your priorities right down to the basics. And this whole danger of being complicit and sitting on the fence that you get to a place that is a point of no return. So Mark steps outside, some sort of van seemed to be standing in the street outside, and there were three or four uniformed men in capes. He remembered afterwards how the wet oil skin shone in the lamplight. A torch was flashed in his face. That's a flashlight. Excuse me, sir, said one of the men. I must ask for your name. Studdock, said Mark. Mark Gainsby Studdock, said the man. It is my duty to arrest you for the murder of William Hengist. So, got the wages of sin, the dangers of complicity with evil coming home to roost. So, now, after all of that awfulness, the scene shifts back to St. Anne's, where things are much different. Yes, said the director, we're going into action at last. The battle has started. I've already repeatedly urged, said McPhee, the absurdity of sending out an older man like yourself that's done a day's work forby, where here am I, a great strapping fellow, sitting doing nothing. Now remember, McPhee is the skeptic. He is there, but he is uh, an agnostic. He does not believe in Maladil or the Eldils or any of them. It's no good, McPhee, said the director. You can't go. For one thing, you don't know the language. And for another, it's time for frankness. You've never put yourself under the protection of Maladil. I'm perfectly ready, said McPhee, in and for this emergency, to allow the existence of these Eldils of yours and of a being called Maladil, whom they regard as their king, and I, you can't go, said the director. I will not send you. It would be like sending a three-year-old child to fight a tank. So you see, they've been waiting on God's timing. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting some more while things are falling down around them. But the moment for action has come, and when it comes, they are obedient. So they've been waiting on God's timing, and they are very aware that they need the power of God's protection. So the director talks to Dumble. This is the situation, Dumble. What was under Bragdon was a living Merlin. Yes, asleep, if you like to call it sleep, and nothing has yet happened to show that the enemy have found him. It's not reached by a shaft or a stair. Jane dreamed of going through a long tunnel with a very gradual ascent. Jane thinks she can recognize the entrance to that tunnel under a heap of stones at the end of a copse with, what was it, Jane? A white gate, sir, an ordinary five-barred gate with a cross piece. But the cross piece was broken off about a foot from the top. I'd know it again. You see, Dumble, there's a very good chance that this tunnel comes up outside the area held by the nice. Apparently, said the director, we are almost too late. He was waked already. I think it means the whole thing has been planned and timed long, long ago, said the director, that he, Merlin, went out of time into the perichronic state for the very purpose of returning at this moment. So this is the whole idea that God is outside of time, that God is orchestrating in events in ways that we do not understand, and that God's eternal purposes are beyond our comprehension. So then, Dumble, only you know the great tongue. If there was eldelic power behind the tradition that Merlin represented, he may understand the great tongue. Even if he does not understand it, he will, I think, recognize it. That will teach him he is dealing with masters. That's one of the words they use for the great spirits. 
there is a chance he will think you are the Bellberry people, his friends. In that case, you will bring him here at once. You understand, Dumble, your revolver in your hand, a prayer on your lips, your mind fixed on Malodil. Then if he stands, conjure him. So we see here the whole idea of the eternal power of God's kingdom, the power of the word, this logos kind of word that's the ancient pre-fall language. What shall I say in the great tongue, asked Dumble? Say that you are come in the name of God and all angels, and in the power of the planets, from one who sits today in the seat of the Pendragon, and command him to come with you. Say it now. And Dumble, who had been sitting with his face drawn and rather white, between the white faces of the two women, and his eyes on the table, raised his head, and great syllables of words that sounded like castles came out of his mouth. Jane felt her heart leap and quiver at them. Everything else in the room seemed to have been intensely quiet. Even the bird and the bear and the cat were still staring at the speaker. The voice did not sound like Dumble's own. It was as if the words spoke themselves through him from some strong place at a distance, or as if they were not words at all, but present operations of God, the planets, and the Pendragon. For this was the language spoken before the fall and beyond the moon, and the meanings were not given to the syllables by chance or skill or long tradition, but truly inherent in them as the shape of the great sun is inherent in the little water drop. This was language herself as she first sprang at Maladil's bidding out of the molten quicksilver of the star called Mercury on Earth, but Vitrilbia in deep heaven. So this is the whole idea of the power and beauty of the speech of God and how it is so far different. Think of the speech of Babel, the double speak of Belberry, and contrast it to this kind of language. And then, if Merlin comes with you, all is well. If he does not, why then, Dimble, you must rely on your Christianity. Do not try any tricks. Say your prayers and keep your will fixed in the will of Maladil. I don't know what Merlin will do, but stand firm. You can't lose your soul, whatever happens, at least not by any action of his. Yes, said Dimble, I understand. So this whole idea of focusing on Christ and God's will, standing firm in faith, security in Christ, all of that, Lewis is bringing all of those into this preparation to go out and finally act after waiting. So then the director turns to Jane. You are all right, child, said Ransom. I think so, sir, said Jane. Her actual state of mind was one she could not analyze. Her expectation was strung up to the height something that would have been terror, but for the joy. And joy, but for the terror, possessed her. An all-absorbing tension of excitement and obedience. Everything else in her life seems small and commonplace compared with this moment. Do you place yourself in the obedience, said the director, in obedience to Maladil? Sir, said Jane, I know nothing of Maladil, but I place myself in obedience to you. It is enough for the present, said the director, this is the courtesy of deep heaven, that when you mean well, he always takes you to have meant better than you knew. It will not be enough for always. He is very jealous. He will have you for no one but himself in the end. But for tonight, it is enough. 
So you see here this idea of joy and being obedient to God's will, even when you are in great danger, how it sorts your priorities and the grace of God and his desire for us. So there are a bunch of themes in this chapter. Um, We could go on for hours, but um, the whole emptiness of materialism, lies, false evidence, and doublespeak are tools of the enemy. Corruption, blackmail, threats, coercion. Uh, You see the human cost of totalitarianism, the danger of stoking ethnic prejudice, the corruption of justice, the danger of complacency, the danger of resignation in the face of evil, that there really is such a thing as good and evil and that they're in a battle with each other. The importance of figuring out your priorities, the danger of sitting on the fence, the wages of sin, uh, the whole idea of the power of God's timing and God's protection, God's eternal purposes, the eternal power of God's kingdom, the power of the logos in God's word, the power and beauty of the kingdom of God, the importance of focusing on Christ, standing firm in the joy that comes in obedience to God's will. So some practices of hope and wisdom. Let's say um, Philippians 4 together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So a couple of practices. First, watch your life, your companions, and your beliefs closely for conformity to the word of God. It is so easy to slide away. It's like that old Paul Simon song, slip sliding away. And scripture tells us to be on the alert from 1 Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then from Proverbs, he is in the way of life who heeds correction, but he who forsakes reproof leads others astray. And this also goes right along with the other proverb, bad company corrupts good character. Secondly, do not be taken in by propaganda and the wisdom of the world. This is so hard because it is all around us. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows of the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Thirdly, hold fast to a biblical view of identity and reject all forms of racial and ethnic prejudice. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Fourth, wait on God's timing rather than relying on your own. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart 
and wait for the Lord. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And lastly, seek the joy of being in the center of the will of God, even in times of fear. One of the things Lewis is trying to get across in this chapter is how often we want safety rather than being in the center of the will of God. And the fact of the matter is there's no safer place eternally than to be right in the center of the will of God. And if you opt for safety all the time, you miss not only the will of God, but the joy that is there. So from Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then this great verse from Hebrews that I would commend to you to memorize. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We live in a time where it is really easy to grow weary and lose heart. And we are told right there that the remedy to that is to consider Jesus. And so lastly, the lyrics for what we're listening to at the beginning, I waited for the Lord. He inclined unto me. He heard my complaint. Oh, blessed are they that hope and trust in him. And I would commend to you to listen to this. Think about the words. If you don't like that style of music, listen to 40 by U2. 40 by U2 is Psalm 40 set to music. And then the Mumford and Sons songs, I Will Wait, um, is a beautiful song about waiting and prayer. So none of us, if you're like me, like to wait. Um, we want what we want when we want it, which is right now. Uh, but one of the things Lewis is telling us all through this is that the Lord's ways are not our ways, and that we need to depend on him, we need to seek after him, and we need to wait on his timing. And in that, when the time comes to act, even though it may be scary, there will be joy in that time. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing story. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that is in it. We thank you for how uncannily relevant it is to the times in which we live. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom about how to live in these days, how to honor you. Lord, I pray that you would protect all of us from the assaults of the enemy and that you'd help us to wait upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. Uh, be on the lookout for the email because I'll have links to that music, uh, which I would commend for your homework assignment.